I interrupt this regularly scheduled exposition of Isaiah to pause today because um, with so many people being gone as a favor to them, I wanted to wait until we jumped into Isaiah chapter 1. In place of that, though, this morning, I will focus on a passage that has been life-changing for me. Probably the most life-changing, influential text in the entirety of my life, John chapter 15. And to prepare for that, I want to pose a question. And maybe it's a question you've never dared to ask before in your life, never dared to ask, but the question is this. What is even the point of obedience? Why do we do that? I know that you know that you're supposed to obey. But have you ever considered why it is you are supposed to obey? The question is, what really is even the point of holiness? The question is, does my personal holiness actually accomplish anything in the scheme of eternity? Does this really change anything? Like seriously, I'm one of 8 billion people on the planet. I am one of trillions that have existed in history. In the scheme of eternity, is my personal holiness and sanctification, is it really that big of a deal? Because we're, if we're being honest, don't we just sort of feel like oftentimes the pursuit of holiness is a little bit like Santa Claus is coming to town? Better be good for goodness sake. You better be good because that's what Christians do. Is that what this is? Just, just nice, ethical people with good morals? Is that what we're talking about? What I'm asking is, is there a cosmic purpose to our obedience? Is there eternal significance in our holiness? If it doesn't earn our way to heaven, and it most certainly does not do that, then what will be the point of our holiness once we get to heaven? Do you see? What I'm asking is, is there really a point to your personal pursuit of holiness in the scheme of eternity? And there is an answer to that question, and the answer is a universe-splitting yes. As a matter of fact, it does matter. It does matter why you be holy, and it does matter how you be holy. And to answer that question, Christ provides the answer in a text you've probably seen a thousand times in your life. A text that you have read, and you know, and maybe even you have it memorized. And it is here in John 15 when Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who abides in me and I in him. He it is who bears much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. You understand that text, that right there, that is literally the deal breaker of the Christian life. That text is the solution to every single struggle that you could possibly face in the Christian life. You, a branch abiding in the vine, Jesus Christ, that is the answer to everything. And maybe you're thinking, okay, Jared, calm down a little bit. I am going to believe you, but what does that even mean? To which I replied, not so fast. And we'll get there, but not so fast, because I just want you to know that this morning very well could be, and I very much hope that it is, a watershed moment for you. In fact, I've prayed for you this week that this morning would be a fork in the road for you. That because of what you see in the text, that it would be so compelling and so convincing that your lives would never be the same again. 
That this morning would literally be one of those breakthrough moments for you as you finally learn the secret of how to put to death those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that never seem to take no for an answer. That you would be staggered by the reality that authentic life change and transformation is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. Because even though there was no sign over the door this morning when you walked in, if there was one, I would have wanted it to say there is hope for you, and there is hope for you because of the kind of Savior to whom you belong. And the kind of Savior to whom you belong is one that not just merely canceled the guilt for the sins of the past, but one that provides the power we need to live a life of cosmic significance. So prepare yourselves, little flock. For the deepest answer the Bible provides for how we can be holy and why we must be holy. And the answer is found in John 15. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text three realities. Three realities about the Christian life with which you must come to grips if you want a life that brings glory to the Father. That's where we're headed. Three realities about the Christian life with which you must come to grips if you want a life that brings glory to the Father. And the first reality is this. Number one, you must come to grips with the actual situation of the Christian life. You must come to grips with the actual situation of the Christian life. Now, here is why chapter 15 is so significant. It's significant because it comes between chapters 13 and 17, which you remember is all one scene. In fact, what it is, is Christ's last meal with his disciples in a rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem just hours before he is betrayed and arrested and tortured and crucified and then publicly executed. And yet, even with the weight of eternity crushing his soul like an avalanche, Christ is very concerned to instruct his disciples and us not just how to keep a few rules, but to how to live a transformed life that brings glory to the Father. In other words, holiness, obedience, authentic life change and transformation, because in the scheme of eternity, those things matter. They really, really matter. And get this, to explain how to be holy, Christ doesn't draw a diagram. He doesn't enter calculations into a computer. He doesn't write up formulas with complex equations and fractions. No, to explain how to be holy, he uses a metaphor. In fact, it is a gardening metaphor, a horticultural, agricultural gardening metaphor complete with vine and branches and fruit and a master gardener overseeing the entire operation. And the metaphor begins, of course, in verse 1. Look at the text. Christ says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And there it is again. One of those I am statements. And you remember the others, don't you? There were seven before this, and this is the last. I am the Messiah. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally here he says, I am the true vine. Which means he's using a metaphor. And metaphors stand for something. And the metaphor Christ uses, get this now, it explains and illustrates what the Christian life is and how the Christian life works. 
In verses 1 through 3, that's exactly what Christ explains. In fact, there are four components that describe the Christian life and how it works. Four components that describe the Christian life. You've got to get this. Number one, there is a vine. Number two, there is a vine dresser or master gardener. Number three, there are two kinds of branches, some of which bear fruit, others of which do not. And number four, there is a thing called fruit. And each one of those things stands for something. And let me just tell you that if you get these, you will get the Christian life. Let's unfold these one at a time. Number one, there is a vine. There is a vine, and you can see there that it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the vine. In fact, in verse 1, he calls himself the true vine. Which is interesting because you need to understand this vine metaphor, this is not the first time this was used in the Bible. Christ did not make this up. This did not originate with him. Rather, this metaphor has history. It has baggage. It is loaded with all sorts of connotations in the Old Testament, most of them being really, really negative because this, this metaphor is used nine times in the Old Testament, and every single time it describes Israel and their failure to be and do what God called them to be and do. Every time it describes Israel as a sick, diseased vine that cannot bear fruit, and the only thing that it's good for is to be destroyed. And so it's only negative connotations until one day Christ steps on the scene and he says, I am the true vine. Which means the statement that's being made there is, I have come to be and do what Israel could never be and do on their own. And yet, and yet in using the analogy, this is not just for Israel. You see, when he calls himself the vine, what he's doing, you understand, is explaining his role in the Christian life. Because when he calls himself the vine, he means that as the vine, he provides all that we need to do what God commands. That's what it means to be the vine. That he is the life-giving never-ending, self-sustaining vine of inexhaustible power that richly supplies everything that we need. You understand, as the vine, he is both ruler and supplier. As the vine, he is both commander and provider. As God, he commands what we will. As the vine, he provides exactly what we need. And so already you can see the implications of this, can't you? The implication is it literally doesn't matter what it is you're struggling with at this moment because since we have a vine, there is hope for you. You can be changed. You can be different. You can be holy. In fact, the vine doesn't command you to do anything that he himself has not already provided the power you need to obey. We have a vine, but not only that, number two, there is a vine dresser. Or master gardener. Look at verse 1. Christ says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Do you see that? There is a vine, but there's also a vine dresser, a.k.a. master gardener. The question is, what does that even mean? Because you know, you know what gardeners are like, don't you? They care about the garden, their garden, don't they? 
They love their garden, and they are intensely concerned about the health of their gardens. I mean, picture them. There they are on their hands and knees, laboring in the sun, laboring to give them whatever their garden, whatever is best for their garden. You see, no one cares more about the garden of the gardener than the gardener himself. See, that is the father's role in your life. He is intensely concerned. He is passionate about your growth. In fact, no one cares more. No one is more passionate about your growth than the Father is. You see, you understand, he is not watching you from afar with binoculars all ticked off because the branches don't bear fruit the way he'd like them to. No, there he is. There is the Father on his hands and knees, as it were, hovering over you, the branches, intensely concerned, ready to give you exactly what you need. You have a vine dresser. But speaking of branches, that brings us to component number three. Look at verse two. He says, every branch in me not bearing fruit, he takes it away. And everything which does bear fruit, he, the Father, prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So we see not only is there a vine, not only is there a vine dresser, there are also branches. And we see that there are two kinds of branches that Christ describes. Some of which bear fruit, some of which do not. And I think the metaphor is clear. Isn't it exactly what the branches represent? Rather, who they represent The branches are people, aren't they? Real people with real lives, with real souls who really live forever. The branches are people because Christ says, does he not in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The branches are people. And there are only two kinds of people in the world, those that bear fruit and those that don't. And notice what Christ says happens to the branches that don't bear fruit, verse 2. Christ says, every branch in me not bearing fruit, what does the Father do? He takes it away. Now, we're about to see what Christ means by fruit here, but I want you to notice that branches that don't bear fruit are removed by the Father. You want to take a stab at what that means? This is a weighty thing. This is a weighty thing because you don't have to have a green thumb or a PhD in gardening to know that branches that don't bear fruit have something wrong going on. I'm sure they may look green and give the appearance of life from a distance, and yet because they don't bear fruit, they're not actually connected to the vine. They don't actually have life, at least not in the same way that branches that bear fruit do. And so anyone with the most basic horticultural knowledge knows that branches that don't bear fruit are detrimental to the vine and they need to be removed. In other words, you take a pair of garden shears and you cut them off, which is exactly what Christ says the Father does. So the question is, can you guess what kind of people are they that don't bear fruit? text is clear. Fruitless branches, get this now, are unbelievers, non-Christians, those without salvation, and, and, and there's no life in their soul, and you know there is no life because there is no fruit. And we know that's who he means because look at verse 6. Christ says in verse 6 that branches that don't bear fruit are rejected and withered and gathered and thrown into a furnace and burned. That is less than encouraging. That is not how people who belong to Christ are ever described in Scripture. 
And ultimately what he means here is their eternal destruction even in hell itself, which means this metaphor, country, cute, and small town, rural, though it may be, deals with matters of eternal significance. And yet, having said that, there are branches that bear fruit. That's a good thing. That's a great thing because now we're talking about people who are saved. Now we're talking about people who are alive. We're talking about people who have been awakened by sovereign grace, people who are in the vine, branches that bear fruit, you understand, or another way of describing people who have been born again and who belong to Jesus Christ by faith, which means the most appropriate question that I can and should ask at this moment is, stay with me, what kind of branch are you? What kind of branch are you? A branch that bears fruit to the glory of the Father? Or a barren branch who has no life in your soul? And I know that's a loaded question. My objective is not to make you unnecessarily fearful or introspective, but based on this text, you at least have to pose the question. Is there any true life in your soul? Are you truly connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ, or are you not? And the answer is, how would you know? How would you know if you were connected to the vine? And to answer that, we have to look at the final component that Christ describes, because in the Christian life, there is a vine, there is a gardener, there are branches, and finally, there is fruit. There is fruit. The question is, what does that mean? What does Christ mean by fruit? Well, think about it. Another word for fruit is produce. That which is produced. And then the metaphor is brilliant, isn't it? Because when there's fruit growing on the tree, it is A, obvious and undeniable. I mean, there are either apples on the tree or there are not. B, fruit on the tree is evidence that the tree is alive and healthy and growing. And C, fruit on a, uh, that grows on trees, if it is healthy, is consistent. And if cultivated over time, actually increases over time. And so you can see what Christ means by fruit, can't you? Fruit is evidence. It is the highly imperfect but undeniable evidence that something is there, that there is life in your soul, that you have been truly redeemed and rescued by Jesus Christ. Fruit is the irrefutable proof of the sovereign, transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is fruit, and yet know exactly what you're thinking. That's true. That's true that fruit is the deal breaker in the Christian life that reveals whether I am a true believer or a make believer, and it is, then the question becomes, okay, well, what kind of fruit should I be looking for? What is the produce? What is the evidence that I am truly in the vine, Jesus Christ? What kind of fruit should I be looking for? And you remember the apostle Paul gave us a list, didn't he? You remember Galatians 5, 22 and 23? I believe with John 15 in his mind, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit, the produce of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Don't you see? That is evidence. That is the kind of evidence about which Christ speaks question is, do you see any of that in your life? And again, again, I know what you're thinking because I'm feeling the exact same way. 
Sometimes the fruit we bear is a little wormy and bruised. Sometimes the fruit in our lives is contaminated by the pesticides of pride and sinful motives. Sometimes the fruit in our lives is way more sporadic or, or sparse than we'd prefer, but nevertheless, if you are really in the true vine, Jesus Christ, there has got to be something. There's got to be something. Is there something in your life? The question is, do you see fruit in your life? Do you see the kinds of slow and steady, gradually increasing evidence that you're truly in the vine, Jesus Christ? That is the question. What kind of branch are you exactly? One that bears fruit or one that does not? So that's the situation of the Christian life, which brings us to reality number two. Reality two, with which you must come to grips. Number two, you must come to grips with how the Christian life actually works. You must come to grips with, with how the Christian life actually works because the thing about the Christian life is that it spells great doom for those who take pride in being self-reliant. It does. You see, no one, especially not Americans, like to be told that they can't do something if they just put their mind to it. The reality is we need to come to grips with this. You see, I, in preparation for this, I looked up the most popular self-help motivational slogans. You know, those things that you put in a frame and you put in an office space and it's supposed to inspire people to work together as a team and be really productive. I looked up the most popular ones and here they are. Where there's a will, there's a way. You are stronger than you think. If you can dream it, you can achieve it, or whatever version it is out there. Believe in yourself and you will be unstoppable. All you need to achieve is the power of the will. Here's another one. Yes, you can! Exclamation mark. My favorite is, fake it until you make it. Story of my life. And last but not least, I can, I will, end of story. There they are, the slogans. And sure, sure, maybe those cheesy man-centered motivations work when it comes to doing natural things, but the problem is, the problem is Christianity isn't natural. It is profoundly supernatural. You see, contrary to what so many people think, Satan doesn't come whispering, believe in me. He comes whispering, believe in yourself. The problem is you notice what Christ says at the end of verse 5. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Which means when it comes to the Christian life, the self-help slogans are worthless. You have a will, but there's just no way. You are weaker than you think. If you can dream it, you still can't achieve it. Believe in yourself and you are only stoppable. You can fake it all you want, but you will still never make it. And the reason for that, this is very important, the reason for that is because Christianity is not merely difficult, it is impossible. Don't you see? Everything that Christ calls you to be and do in the Christian life requires a supernatural power that you don't possess. That's how Christianity works, and you can see it in verses 4 and 5. 
Look what Christ says. It's very interesting. In verse 3, I believe what Christ does is give them the assurance that they are in the vine, that they are saved. He says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, which means we don't have to make ourselves right with God on the basis of our own achievements. Neither do you. That's very important. But notice what he says in verses 4 and 5. He's about to, this is what it looks like to live out your Christian life. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch is not able to bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who abides in me and I in him. This one bears much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. I am not even joking when I say that contained in that text is the secret to everything you've been waiting for. Seriously. The secret to authentic life change. The secret to overcoming sin and temptation. The way to live a life that brings glory to the Father. It's all contained there in that, those four words used, or those, that one word used four times in two verses, namely the little, tiny, seemingly insignificant word, Abide. That is literally the deal breaker of the entire thing. That's how it works. And yet the question, the question is, okay, if that's true, that abiding in Christ is the secret to the entire operation, the question becomes, okay, what does that even mean and how do you do it? Right? And the answer is really simple. You see, if Christ is like a vine that richly supplies the branches with everything that they need, and he is. And if we are like branches that desperately need the vine with absolute desperation, and we are, then abiding is nothing less, get this now, than moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon Christ for all that he is and all that he accomplished. That's abiding. To put it another way, it is continuous and conscientious, clinging to Christ with white-knuckled tenacity for all that he provides to do all that he commands. To put it even another way, to abide means that you must despair in your worthless resources to live the Christian life, and you must cast yourself upon Christ for his endless ones. That's what it means to abide. Moment by moment, second by second, desperation upon Christ to provide all that we need to do all that he commands. Which means Christ doesn't just demand that you obey him. He actually provides all that you need so that you can obey him. And you're probably dying to know, okay, if that's true, if, if abiding in Christ is moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon Christ for all that he provides to do all that he commands, which it is, then the question is, okay, how do you actually do that in real time, actual real life situations? Because the problem is not an understanding and definition. The problem is actually how to do that in the trenches of life. And I know exactly what you mean. I'm going to tell you because Christ tells us in verse 7. But I want you to notice, notice very carefully what Christ said. Because you notice he didn't just say, abide in me and then call it good. 
No, he added something of profound importance that you simply cannot miss. Look at verse 4. He says, abide in me, here it is, and I in you. See how clever that is? Abide in me and I in you. That is unbelievable language. What does it mean? Christ is saying, when you abide in me, you need to know I am right there abiding in you, producing in you everything I demand of you. I think that's what he's after. Because you understand that the Christian life does not consist in Christ shooting over transfusions of his power from another galaxy. No, in the Christian life, he is closer to you even than your own skin. He is in you and he is with you, producing in you everything that he requires of you. That's abiding. Which should sound really familiar. That that rings a very familiar bell. Again, Galatians 2.20, what does it say? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives where? In me in me and the life which I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That is the most astonishing reality in the universe. Christ in you, you in Christ. The only question is, do you abide in Jesus Christ? Which means what I'm asking is, do you have moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon Christ for all that he provides to do all that he commands? Have you come to grips with the reality that all we are on our own, by ourselves, are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace? Because I'll just tell you, if you want to grow, if you want to be changed, if you want to be different, if you want to overcome those hard-to-reach sins that just never seem to take no for an answer, this is exactly what it's going to take. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice the, the, the question here, why is it so necessary to abide? Why do we have to do this? What, is it, what reason is this so important? And the answer is, it's about as important, the reason why it's as important for us is because it's about as, it's about as important for us as oxygen is for the human race to survive. Look again at verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. Why? Because, because the branch is not able to bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. That's astonishing. The reason why this is such a deal breaker is because the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Which is true, right? I mean, you think about it. Can branches be or do anything other than be weak and dependent upon the vine? Do branches have any of the internal components in themselves that allow them to operate independently of the vine? Is there anything within branches that allow them to be self-sustaining and self-sufficient? Anything at all. That is why we're called branches, do you see? Because on our own, we are nothing more than fragile little sticks that only fulfill our purpose in life when we are fruit-bearing instruments attached to the vine. See, you will not grow. 
You will not change. You will not become holy. You will not put your pet sins to death on your own without the vine because all we are is just a branch. You understand every single issue in life is won or lost on this issue. In other words, we either conquer sin or we are conquered by sin. And the decisive factor in the matter depends on whether we abide in the vine. You understand adulteries only happen because somewhere along the way, a husband or wife wasn't abiding in the vine. People's lives get consumed by the ravenous beast of lust and porn and whatever else is out there. Only when one stops abiding in the vine, all drama and conflict between people happens precisely because somewhere along the way, someone in the mix wasn't abiding in the vine. This is the deal breaker of the Christian life. But then notice in verse 5, Christ pulls it all together in a bold, clear, vivid, graphic language. Christ describes the essence of how the Christian life operates. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, whose lives bear fruit? Whose lives display authentic life change and transformation? Who overcomes those hard-to-reach sins that never seem to go away. There is but one answer to that question, those who abide in the vine. Because if we don't do that, look what Christ says at the end of verse 5. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Literally, the Greek text says, apart from me, you are not able to do nothing. Apart from me, you are not able to do nothing. It's a double negative. Do you hear it? It doesn't work in English, but it's great in Greek. The point is, it's intensive. It is emphatic. The point is unmistakable. To succeed in the Christian life, you must master the virtue of desperation. You understand this morning that the path of sanctification and path of discipleship is the path of poverty and weakness. And I know none of us are particularly crazy about the idea of having our weaknesses exposed, but I'll just tell you that if dependence is the goal in the Christian life, it's very important here, if dependence is the goal in the Christian life, and it is, then you need to know that your weakness is to your advantage. I'm going to say that again. You need to feel that. If, if dependence is the goal in the Christian life, and it is, then you need to know that your weakness is to your advantage. Why? Because when we see how weak we really are, we will despair in our worthless resources to live the Christian life, and we will cast ourselves upon Christ for his endless ones. And when you do that, you will abide. And when you do that, you will bring glory to the Father. The question is again, do you abide in Jesus Christ? Which means what I'm asking you is, do you continuously and conscientiously cling to Christ with white-knuckled intensity for all that he is and all that he accomplished? Because that's what it looks like to be a Christian in real time. This is how you are to encounter 
every single situation that you could possibly face in your life, namely abiding in the vine. The question, however, the question is, okay, it's not just that you should abide. It's how do you abide? If this is such a big deal, and it is, if this is such a deal breaker, and it is, then how do we do this? And that's exactly what I'm going to answer right now, which brings us to reality number three. Reality number three, you must come to grips with how to abide and what's at stake when you do. You must come to grips with how to abide and what's at stake when you do, because that's the billion-dollar question, isn't it? How do you do this abiding thing? How do you actually do this? Because believe it or not, although it is supernatural, it is also deceptively simple. And yet first, before Christ answers that, look at his words in verse 6. There are few words more chilling in the Gospel of John than this verse right here in verse 6. Notice what he says. He's talking about those who do not abide, those who are not connected to the vine. Look what he says. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and is gathered and is thrown into the fire and burned. And again, when he's talking about those who don't abide, I don't want you to panic. He's not talking about authentic Christians who had a bad week. He's talking about people who never abide. People who are Christian in name only. People who may give the appearance of life from a distance. Those who profess to know Christ but don't actually know Christ. People who do not abide. In other words, he's talking about unbelievers. He says that they are rejected and withered, and gathered, and thrown into a fire, and burned. That can only describe one thing, the future judgment of people at the end of the age. I just want you to know that if you are possibly included in that group of those who aren't attached to the vine, which means you are in danger of being cast into the eternal furnace of the wrath of God. I just want you to know that if you still have a pulse, there is time for you. There is time. To turn from your sin, to turn from your self-reliance, to turn from your selfishness, to turn from your pride and embrace by faith Jesus Christ as the highest treasure in the universe, which you, if, if you have not done so, I'm praying that you would do so even at this very moment. But notice in verse 7, here it is. Here it is. Metaphorical drum roll, please. Christ finally reveals the secret of how to abide in him. And as you're about to see, it ain't rocket science, but it is more powerful than rocket science. Look what he says. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, did you see it? Did you see it there in the text? The secret to all life change and transformation. Did you see it? The answer came in two parts. Number one, look very carefully. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Did you notice what he just did? Two other times Christ said, you abide in me and I abide in you. You abide in me and I abide in you. But here, did you see what he did? He changed it. He switched the wording. 
from I abide in you to my words abide in you. The question is, do you see the significance of the tweak? Do you see the significance of the bait and switch? What he's doing there? What does it matter? It matters because, get this, Christ is explaining how we actually get access to the power to fight lust and kill pride and combat anger and defeat anxiety and pursue purity and be humble and save our marriages. And how does it happen? What did he say? How does he supply the power we need to do what he commands? What does the text say? He does it through his word. Did you see? He's talking about truth. He's talking about scripture. That's what he means when he says, my words abide in you. Don't you see? To use his word as a synonym for himself is his way of saying that the only way to access the invincible power that he supplies is through the instrument of holy scripture. That is how Christ abides in us. That's how we abide in him. It is through his word. There is literally no higher place that Christ could have given to the holy scriptures. I may have told this before, that the supreme place of importance that Christ places on the word reminds me of a girl who used to attend the ministry over which I was a pastor when I did college ministry. And she told me about an experience that she had with a former pastor at a different church where at a time when she was struggling, her pastor actually saw fit to take her Bible away from her and not allow her to read the Bible when she was struggling because in his estimation, reading the Bible was detrimental to her spiritual health because what she really needed was Jesus, not Scripture. I'm going to be nice, and I'm going to be calm, and I'm going to do my best to think the best of that man and his maneuver, because well-intentioned though that may have been, it was the worst possible and most unloving remedy in the universe. Why? Because to cut yourself off from Holy Scripture is to cut yourself off from Christ himself. You understand, truth is the jugular vein that courses with the holy power to do what God commands. And I really believe that when Christ talks about his word abiding in you, I believe that he's talking about the ancient biblical art of meditation. That his word would be in you. In you. It would be in you. He's talking about internalization, memorization, saturation, preoccupation with scripture. And again, the question is, what is meditation? It is not a Buddhist thing. It's not even just reading the Bible. No, meditation is like observing the beauty of a sunset or savoring a meal or warming your hands by a fire as opposed to reading a text message. Meditation is intense, rigorous, thinking about a text in scripture where you savor the texture, enjoy the seasoning, cherish the flavor, reading it again and again and again until it grips you, until it becomes a part of you. The question is, do you read the Bible like that? Do you read the Bible like that? Not because it makes God happy with you or makes him like you more, but because reading the Bible like that makes you happy in God above all things. And when you're happy in God above all things, then your lives will begin to change. There's a second part to abiding in Christ, and I close with this. Look at the end of verse 7. 
Christ says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you see what he's talking about? What is he talking about at the end of verse 7? Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What is he saying? You know what he's talking about, don't you? You know exactly what he's saying. He's talking about prayer, isn't he? He has to be because bold, passionate, persistent prayer is part of the essence of what abiding in Christ is. You need to understand that to experience the kind of life change that transforms your life and satisfies your souls, you need to be a people who pray. A people who always have the blue tooth of prayer, always in your soul, connected to the headquarters of heaven, always begging for exactly what you need. Don't you see? The word and prayer. The word and prayer. This is how it works. I mean, do you see what I mean when I say that that abiding in Christ is deceptively simple? The Sunday school answer is still the right answer. Don't. Mock it just because you've heard it before. Don't knock it just because it sounds familiar. How we abide and access the power to do what Christ commands is a soul full of truth and a mouth full of prayer. That is it. That is how it works. So here's the question. If you meditated on Scripture 10 minutes a day and you poured your guts out in 10 minutes a day of supplication to the Lord. The question is, do you think your lives would change? Maybe the better question is, do you think your lives would ever be the same again? Because when we do that, we are abiding in Christ. And when we abide in Christ, we bear much fruit. And when we bear much fruit, our lives bring glory to the Father. And when we bring glory to the Father, you understand that is a life of incalculable cosmic significance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we understand or at least we are beginning to come to grips with the fact that to believe in you is not a one-time event, but it is an unceasing activity of the soul where we cling, trust, hope, depend, hold fast to you with all that we are. And yet, Lord, we are so grateful that the strength of our abiding does not depend on upon us because when we abide in you, you abide in us. And so we need you, we cry out to you, we plead with you to change our prayer habits, to change our reading habits, to transform our mere reading into meditation, from our mere prayers here and there into unceasing supplication, begging you for help. Oh Lord, would you please help us to come to grips with our branch-like nature, to see that we need you moment by moment, second by second, help us to abide so that our lives will display your life-transforming power and grace and thus bring glory to you and put you on display to the world. Thank you so much for this time together. In your mighty name we pray.